And all of God's people said, amen. The children can be dismissed now to Children's Church for those that would like to do that. And while they're heading out, please open up your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 16. We press on in this glorious gospel of God from Luke. Well, as Adam mentioned in his prayer, today we're hit with the biggest things of life in our text. Huge issues confronting us. Life and death, heaven and hell, true allegiance, riches and poverty, justice and judgment. Does it get any heavier than that? I don't think so. Well, this is heavy, and when we come to God's word, we come with our experience, we come with our lives. Here we are. And then we are running headlong into redemptive history and the word of the living God. And there's a collision that takes place. And we desperately need the Holy Spirit to be in the midst of that collision that we would have our hearts and our minds and our lives shaken. That we would have eyes to see and ears to hear the word of the Lord to prepare us, each and every one of us, to meet God face to face someday. Because here's the rub. Jesus is going to give us a great warning this morning. We need to know the context for our text and also the context for our lives. So here's the rub. You see, the average American today is wealthier than 99% of all the people that have ever lived on this planet. And according to the Barna Group, 76% of all Americans believe in the existence of heaven. And 73% believe in hell. And 64% of Americans think they are definitely going to go to heaven, while 0.5% think they're going to hell. But what does God's word say? What does God's word say about heart allegiance and true treasure and how a person escapes hell and heads to heaven what does God's word say about money we're told that it's the root of all manner of evil and so get this here we are this nation that has amassed the most wealth in history and we overwhelmingly believe that there is a heaven and we overwhelmingly believe that we're going to heaven so we really need to hear this warning about money and heaven and hell from the one who experienced hell for his people so that he became the king of heaven that we can come in. He gives us a warning. It starts in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. So that's the context for chapter 16. The Lord's traveling along the road headed to Jerusalem, to the Passion, to the cross, and along the way he's disputing with the Pharisees because they hate him and they hate his message because they hate his father. Jesus' father is the light of life and love and truth and they are of their father, the devil. 
who's of darkness and lies. And so the Pharisees attack Jesus, and so he exposes them for who they really are. He exposes their hard hearts and who they really serve. But he does it in a way that's very important. He condemns them, but he also gives a warning to the other ears, his disciples. And we need to hear that warning too. So here in chapter 16, we're reminded that the Lord is the Lord God of all the resources. He's the God of creation. Everything we have has been given to us as a gift and a blessing to be stewarded and used. And that's why he gives this parable of the unjust steward in the beginning of the chapter. That we see this man who's a worldling acting like the world in the way that he's manipulating things for dishonest gain. He's using the world's wisdom to use resources. And Jesus says, you, the people of God, need to use your resources with wisdom for the advancement of the kingdom in the way that you walk and you live. So that's where we pick up in chapter 16. Jesus exposes the Pharisees and their hard hearts, their self-love, and their love of money. And we'll take this in two, two chunks here, verses 13 to 18 first. Hear God's word. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. The word of the Lord. May he write it upon our hearts for all eternity. Well, this brings us to our first of two points this morning. Jesus contrasts and exposes the servants of God and the servants of self in this life. That's what we see in verses 13 to 18. He warns us. He calls us to be children of light and life to serve him. And and his audience, as I said, it's a mixed audience. There are two kinds of ears in this audience. There's two kinds of people. There are the living ones who are objects of God's grace having been given a new heart, a new life, a new faith, a new joy, and they need to continue to grow in this newness of life. The word comes as a word of warning. And then there's the other type, the spiritually dead, seeking satisfaction and significance in the things of this created world. And of course, this is idolatry, and what they desperately need is an encounter with the living God, with Jesus, the Son, the gift of grace and the flesh. And so Jesus comes exposing, and what he really shows us in the big picture is the competing value systems of the world in the here and the now. And how the world sees money and values money and uses money compared to how those of kingdom values see money and use money 
And what Jesus is doing here is he is warning us all clearly about the deception of wealth and the illusion of wealth and money as an idol. Verses 13 and 14, and the Pharisees mocked Jesus when they heard this. They heard his teaching on money because they were hypocrites, because they loved money more than they loved God. And so Jesus exposes them. They, they're so blinded by their pride. Pride's so ugly, it blinds us. And it blinded them to the point where they denied God's command to show compassion. Well, Jesus, the word of God in the flesh, he brings this warning. He brings this exposure. The word exposes our hearts and shows us the deceitfulness of idols. Anything that you have in your heart as first place that captivates the affections of your heart over that of the Lord is an idol. And God's word contrasts for us what it means and what it looks like to be either a fallen servant of self and sin in this world, serving worldly values, or a trophy of God's loving grace in Christ with kingdom values. We need to think about that. Just consider the purpose of wealth through the lens of self, love of self and love of pride and love of the world. The values associated with that compared to through the lens of kingdom values. How does the world and its values look at money just generally speaking? Well, it's all about accumulating wealth. He who has the biggest stack of cash is king. Well, how do kingdom values approach wealth? Well, generally in Specifically, it's to be used to serve others, to advance God's kingdom and his plan and his purpose. Well, just consider the, the, the source of security and identity as the world views wealth. My 401k is my security. My bank account is my security. My financial success, my status. Well, kingdom values, our security and our identity is in Christ. Our Lord, our King, our Savior. Our righteousness will consider the attitude towards money in general. Worldly values, money as an end in itself, which leads to greed and materialism. How about kingdom values? It sees money simply as a tool for good. Money's not evil. It's what we do with it. That's why Diedrich Bonhoeffer called money dirt. Not because it's worthless, but because it's to be used as a tool or a medium to grow a blessing and a harvest to serve others with. Well, just consider the view of human worth related to money. This is really convicting, especially in our time and place. Worldly values tie human worth to productivity and wealth and appearance. You see? Money attached to the value of humans as a commodity, the buying and selling of people. There's slavery going on all across the globe, and we're blind to it. Well, kingdom values affirm that human worth is inherent. You cannot put a dollar sign on a human being, either in the womb or outside the womb. Well, how about just considering money and the focus on the present versus the eternal perspective. 
you know, the worldly values. We're driven way more by Darwin's theory than we realize. If I came from nothing and I'm going to nothing, right here is all that matters, so let's blow the cash on me. That's what matters. Not an eternal perspective, but then consider the, the kingdom values that emphasize an eternal perspective, valuing the lasting spiritual fruit and joys of the future. Do you realize there are people that you will never meet that sacrifice to help build this building for the future? For worship, for praise, for discipleship. The spiritual value emphasizing money and the perspective of the future. We'll just consider money and the attitude towards suffering. This is the last comparison. The worldly value of money in relationship to suffering is pretty much, well, if people are suffering, it's probably their fault. Somebody else will handle it. That's what taxes are for. I don't have time. But you see, the kingdom value. We're called to do what we can when we see somebody in need and we apply our resources to the suffering. Real and true suffering. But you see, the Pharisees, they twisted God's word and they justified themselves in their use of money. They denied the summation of the law. You know, love the Lord your God with everything you got. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so Jesus brings the truth of God's word home. Indeed, he is the embodiment of the law and the prophets standing right in front of them. And he warns us not to be deceived by the fallen world with its selfish, fallen values. And he wants us to come to him, the true treasure, to come to the Father, to live lives of light and life and blessing and peace. So Jesus warns. He exposes us about the danger of a divided heart, the danger of a hard heart. Do we love wealth more than God? Do we find ourselves worrying more about our 401k and our bank account than we do the kingdom of God? Do we have a divided heart? Well, God sees the heart. And Jesus confronts the Pharisees with the reality that to consider the folly and the danger of setting your hearts on wealth. When what we truly need is the true treasure of Jesus, our great Savior, who we have been praising for his perfect gift of righteousness. And when we take hold of that, brothers and sisters, and we're alive to the gospel and the true righteousness that comes by way of a gift, we force our way into the kingdom of God. We won't take anything but Jesus. And that's what he's getting at as he declares this truth. But you see, Jesus not only exposes the idolatry of the Pharisees, but he also exposes their fake righteousness, their hypocrisy that they were wearing this mask. Oh, yeah, yeah, I love God. But their hearts were far from the Lord, and their actions really betrayed the reality of that. You see, one of the ways that the Pharisees would protect their money, their true God, Jesus exposes clearly in Matthew chapter 7. See, what they would do is they would say, well, whatever money that I might have that you might need is korban. It's an offering to God. So I really don't have anything for you because it's all for God. Can't help family, can't help neighbor, can't help the needy. What a joke. You see, you can play fast and loose with people. But you can't do that with the Lord. 
And so, brothers and sisters, we need to have an authentic spiritual life that values what God values. And we need to be gripped by his grace and the love for God through Christ so that we treasure the Lord and we treasure those who were created in his image. You see, there's nothing more despicable than hypocrisy. But the Lord has the ability to discern the heart's true condition. He is omniscient. It's inescapable. That's what he says in verse 17. And then we have this very strange verse 18. At first reading, it's like, why is that there? Maybe even second and third reading. You know, verse 18 about everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. What in the world is that there for? We know God hates divorce. There are only two biblical grounds for lawful divorce. That is marital infidelity and abandonment. Marriage is between I hate to think that I have to say it, but one biological man and one biological female for life. That's what marriage is. And for the sacred gift. And you see, Jesus confronts the Pharisees with their idolatry and their love for money and how they are dealing with their wives. This has to hit us. You see, with the gift of marriage comes obligations. A man takes his wife and brings her into his home, and there are sacred duties to love her, to care for her, to shepherd her, to provide for her physically and spiritually and emotionally. You see, a woman in Jesus' day was not liberated like women today. No careers, no 401ks, no rights and privileges. The gospel's done so much for women. Hallelujah. Well, women in Jesus' day were more vulnerable than we could really even imagine. They were utterly dependent upon men, fathers and brothers, and ultimately husbands. Marriage was the central aspect of a woman's life, marriage and family. And she couldn't file a no-fault divorce and then get half of her husband's treasure. But you see, for these Pharisees who were lovers of money, they could offload the burden of a wife when she was found to be not useful anymore. You know, she's given me children. She served me. Now I have no use for her. So they could write a formal divorce document, and typically it involved a rabbinical oversight. But guess who did that? Other Pharisees. So no doubt many of these had put their wives out because of their love for money so they didn't have to pay for their wife. How terrible. Loving money more than God so that you deny God's law, you deny God. I mean, isn't the marital relationship really one of the greatest expressions of horizontal love? Loving your spouse? As the Lord calls us to, and fidelity shows forth a love for God, horizontal, showing forth the vertical love. Well, how terrible. Can't we see that even in our own day, divorce is often driven by idolatry and specifically the love of money? How sad. So Jesus reminds the Pharisees and he reminds us the law of God, the holy law, the royal law, the eternal law. It never fades away. 
Heaven and earth will fade away, but the law will not fade away, and it is binding, and every human being will be judged by the law. We stand before Almighty God condemned by the law. Jesus is warning us here in this parable, in these words, to emphasize the reality of God's judgment to come. It's a reality. He's the one who is the embodiment of the law in the flesh and the glory of its fulfillment. Perfection and motion and fidelity and completion so that he could be the Lamb of God that we have been singing about. The glory of our Savior who suffered and died, the punishment that we so richly deserve that we might be wholly forgiven before the holy law. Hallelujah, the gospel. So we must look to Christ because we need the gift of genuine righteousness, not the fake self-justifying righteousness of the Pharisees or any sinner who is justifying himself before the watching world for the way they live. No, we need real righteousness, genuine righteousness, the gift of God's righteousness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul declared in Romans 3, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's our works, not Jesus' works. We're justified by his works of law-keeping, perfect law-keeping. So we receive not only the cleansing of our sins, but really the glorious righteousness of the Son of God. I don't know about you, but I sure as heck don't want my life report card in heaven. I want Jesus's. I don't want to be clothed in my filthy rags. I want Jesus's. That's the gospel. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. But you see, when you get that down in your heart, it transforms the way you think about time and eternity and suffering. So that brings us to our second main point this morning. Jesus contrasts and illustrates the servants of God and the servants of self in the life to come. Verses 19 to 31, we have this parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, 
then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. Well, here Jesus again, he's contrasting and illustrating the, the servants of God and the servants of self in the life to come. That's the picture that we have here in verses 19 to 31. And we're introduced to these two characters. There's the no-name rich guy. And then there is Lazarus, the poor man. The rich man lived in opulence for himself while Lazarus suffered at the doorstep, covered in sores. And what a stark contrast that we see right here. Clearly, unavoidable, suffering. Confronting the rich man day after day. And there's consequences for his behavior. Well, verses 19 to 21, we really get this great warning that Christ illustrates for us of the, the physical and spiritual reality of the future to come. And the consequences of sin and rejecting the Lord brings about the consequences of eternal death and condemnation. You see, the, the sin of greed and indifference will be judged like every sin will be judged. So how do we avoid this? How do we avoid indifference and greed? Well, we have to focus upon the compassion of the Lord Almighty for people like us, don't we? We have to focus upon the reality that God saw us in our suffering and in our spiritual deadness on the highway to hell and he sent forth his only begotten son to come and save the lost and if God being so rich in mercy towards us could move towards rebels like us that Jesus could even die for us while we were yet his enemies how much should we move towards those who are suffering because we've received such compassion you see the gospel it, it shapes our hearts and our lives. It doesn't just call us to salvation, but it calls us to sanctification that we might have new attitudes and actions and power to not be indifferent, but to be involved when we see it and know it and do something about it. See, think about it. This rich man, he had more wealth and resources that he could ever use for himself in his life, and yet he still withheld the blessing and the benefit to this man, Lazarus. Don't you see that's to deny the God of creation who created the rich man and Lazarus in his image? Well, how can we guard against this? How can we guard against becoming indifferent to the needs of others? Again, we have to gaze upon the gospel and keep looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as this parable unfolds, we're confronted with the reality and the truth of life after death, it's certain. Physical and spiritual life after death. And Lazarus is comforted at Abraham's bosom, at Abraham's side. That's just another way of saying Lazarus 
was in heaven. And he's right there with Abraham, the father of the faithful, the one who was justified by God's grace through the gift of faith in the promised one to come. Abraham, remember him, father of the faithful? He believed God. And God credited it to his account as righteousness. And so here's Lazarus, one of faith too. Embodied in the grace of God, brought to heaven because of Christ. Well, the rich man, however, he's in hell. He's enduring the torment of Hades, judged for his sins. And this underscores the solemn truth that our actions on earth will have eternal implications. And all of us, each and every one of us, will be judged in heaven on the day of days, the day of the Lord. You'll either be judged in Christ and you'll hear that glorious good word, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in, all because of Jesus, or you'll be judged in and of yourself, and you'll hear depart from me. And that departure is final, and it's forever. Eternity is forever. The eternity of eternities is forever. And here in the parable, we see the reality of that and the separation of that. Those who were made righteous in Christ and the unrighteous, they're separated. So what does Jesus want us to understand about life after death through this parable? Well, he gives us a reality check that sin is serious. Certainly the sin of indifference, withholding compassion, being greedy, being stingy. With the good things that God has given you, it's sin. And this comes from the one who knows more about sin than you and I because he suffered an eternity on the cross for our sins. So this is the one whose wounds should be personal to us and he is warning us, don't take sin lightly. There's a call right here to faith and repentance because we need the only mediator between God and man and he calls us to himself so we need to recognize the reality of life after death and the importance of faith in Christ for salvation and the importance of a daily life of repentance and turning away and turning to Christ, turning from sin and turning again to the Lord and with a heart filled with love and, and a desire for new obedience each and every day. Well, here's the point. When you die, it's too late. That's what God's word shows us perfectly clear the no-name man the rich man couldn't repent after death it's sobering we need to check our hearts brothers and sisters to see if there be living faith in there and you see before we can truly repent we have to have a new heart and hallelujah, we can have a new heart because the one who died for us is the one who lived for us and the one who was raised for us, destroying death and hell. And as Rick preached, the works of the devil a couple weeks ago. And he ascended on high and he is the one interceding for us. And because of that, he pours forth the Holy Spirit as the Father wills it that we might have new hearts, new minds, new wills, new emotions. So we cry out to the Lord. We come to Jesus. We say, give me a new heart. 
We need to have a new heart filled with love and truth to follow God and to know God. And so we cry out and we repent and we believe. I hope that's your cry, that that's your heart cry today. So this parable emphasizes the importance of repentance and faith in Christ. We desperately need Jesus. He's the true treasure. You can be as rich as Elon Musk and you would be utterly poor without Jesus. The pearl of greatest price. The beauty of true righteousness for his people. The Holy One who brings holy atonement. We need him. So trust in Christ, trust in his person, and trust in his work. And this is the way Jesus ends this. You have everything you need. You have the word of God. That's enough. Do you realize 500 years ago, if you had just two or three books in your house, you were considered rich. And one of those, at least in Western Civ, would be the Bible. Just six or seven hundred years ago, you would be considered rich if you were in a town that had a church with one book, the Bible, chained to the altar. How many books do we have in our houses? Hundreds. How many Bibles do we have in our houses? On our devices. We're rich in what matters most. The means of grace, the word of God, and the word of God points us to the person of Christ, who he is, the son of God, the son of man, the savior, and what he did to deliver us from sin and hell. He's the one that gives us the victory. So scripture's all sufficient. It's exactly what we need and we have it. So we have no excuse. Again, are you looking at your 401k and your bank account more than you're looking at your Bible? Check your heart. This is a call to repentance and faith. It's a call to turn away from false hope, to turn away from money, to turn away from self-righteousness, to turn away from any idol because they will bankrupt you. But Jesus is the treasure of all treasure. So let's examine our hearts, brothers and sisters. Let's see if we be Pharisees. Between you and the Lord, ask those questions. Seek your heart. Seek his face. And, and let's embrace compassion. Keep looking into the gospel. Keep being transformed so that, that you know you have this situation where there's somebody that keeps coming around in your life that is in great need. Don't harden your heart. Serve them. Love them. And hold fast to the truth that this life is not all there is. But we have the compassion of our Savior calling to us. Come on over. We'll be there one day. Lazarus, he experienced the peace and the comfort and the joy of being in the presence, the physical presence of the Savior. That's our future too, brothers and sisters. And let's keep following Christ and praying and seeking and striving to live the devoted life. To grow in humility to grow in faith and new obedience. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness. And we ask that you would transform us by it, that we would offer up 
sincere praise, not just with our lips, but with our lives and with our checkbooks as we seek to live out kingdom values because we are part of the king's family. In Jesus' name, amen.